if you're not clearly in touch with just how unbelievable it feels to care for others, my favorite letter of several hundred thousand will hint at it. January 10th, 2001. Hi! My name is Jesse Meeker. I am 12 years old. Because you got this today, it means that I have died. That is okay, though. I hope you're that cool when you die. She died three days after this letter was written. I saw your movie with Robin Williams. It was funny and sad. I got real sick about a year ago, and I need a liver transplant. I am living in an apartment with my mom in Tacoma, Washington. My dad left us a long time ago because he had problems. We're kind of poor. I was real lonely until I met this crazy guy named Mr. Pete. He came to the apartments to fix a hole we had. He is a painter here at the apartments. He was real quiet and a big man. I was in bed and Mr. Pete came through my room to do the job. On his way out, I said hi to him and we started to talk. He asked me why I was home and I said I was sick and then I told him I was real sick. It didn't seem to matter to him like other adults. He acted like it was normal for people to maybe die. He held my hand and asked if he could come back if mom said it was all right. He talked to mom and said it was all right, so Mr. Pete started to come by sometimes. Mr. Pete is my angel, Dr. Adams. He spends lots of time with me and he has helped me to write letters to people and to write poetry and stuff. We talk and talk and talk all the time. He stays with me when I want to cry so mom could have a break. This is real hard for mom. Mr. Pete writes stuff too, stuff about living and friends and stuff. He knows a lot about sickness and getting well. He worked with families that were having real big troubles like alcohol and drugs and stuff. He said he became a painter here to have a break with, from that life. I think it was hard to him because he is such a great man and nobody knows it. Mr. Pete told me the one thing I might want to do is write letters to people out there in the world that I thought were neat. He said that in that way I could know that important things were told to important people and that it is important to let people know when they touch you in a good way. I am writing to you and Oprah Winfrey and Rosie O'Donnell and Mr. Rogers and Kermit the Frog. I know he is a puppet, but he is so much fun. What I'm telling everyone is about Mr. Pete. The best part is he doesn't know it. That is the important thing because he said he would mail all of the letters after I am gone if I go. And he's mailing all these letters about himself and he doesn't know. Ha ha. He thinks I'm writing fan letters. I think I'm pretty smart for being a kid. I know that you are very busy and might not be able to do this favor for me, and that is all right. I think you would be doing yourself a favor if you called Mr. Pete and met him and tell him that I told you to call. That would probably make him faint. He is my angel and had time for me. He makes everyone around laugh till they cry. His are good laughs. Information. Mr. Pete thinks you are a swell guy. He says that certain souls are family and that you are a certain soul. Thank you for reading this. 
Be happy for me. Your friend, Jessie, she died before I got the letter. And what am I saying, really? I'm really saying that that's what you get when you care for another. You get that, that on her deathbed, and before she died, she wasn't worried about anything. She wanted to make sure somebody cared for this janitor that took care of her. Of course, I call them. <laughs> We're still friends. How's it going today, Patcher? <laughs> Lars, it's the best day of my life. So you woke up this morning and what happened? Well, I, I knew that this was the best day of my life. Hey, sir, how's your day going? You know, thanks for asking. It's the best day of my life. Hi, Patcher. Hi, Lizer. I've listened all of episodes one, two, and nine. Nice. What do you think? You know, I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm so honored to have you as a son. Aw. I listened and I said, shit, that man understands me. I I'm going to be honest. I think you've done a good job. I mean, it's, it's thanks to the team. I'm also honored to be a part of this and honored to be your son. I'm very moved. You know, mm. I grew up in a profession of medicine that mostly kids were trying to deal with their fucked up parents. That's still the case today. And especially their fathers. You know, I didn't pay you. You didn't get something for it. You spent a lot of time and thoughtful time in discussing complicated relationships where in my medical profession, especially when they talked about mental illness, I think you may have heard that I say there is no such thing as mental illness. It's a loss of tribe unconnected to nature and unconnected to the arts. I loved hearing how you spoke about how and what you learned. I'm thrilled for it. I'm gonna tell you that right now. I am thrilled for it. It's the highest honor I've received in my life. Oh, hey. shush. Hey, eat shit and die, son. Um, <laughs> no, you don't want that. No, I'll I eat shit, but I won't die. Welcome to the best day of my life, Patch Adams' journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination with Patch and Lars Adams. Episode 10. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this final episode, we hear from Patch's life partner, Susan. Lars tells us what it was like growing up with Patch Adams as his dad. And of course, we discuss the Nobel Peace Prize winners. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey. Here we go. Episode 10. Are you thrilled to lose? Okay, so Patch did not win the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> The 2021 Nobel Peace Prize went to Maria Ressa from the Philippines and Dmitry Muratov from Russia, two journalists who, according to the Nobel Peace Prize press release, were awarded for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, preconditions for democracy and lasting peace. Both Peace Prize winners Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov use investigative journalism to criticize corrupt and inhumane governments, risking their lives in pursuit of truth, information, and freedom of speech. It's funny, the Peace Prize has always been this long-awaited thing. And I'll tell you the truth. I think that the honor of being nominated, in a way, is bigger than the prize. Yeah, it's... I, I, I can tell you this, after I heard of the winners, I thought, wow, it'd be 
fun to know. I would read a page of each nominee. Mm. And and I'll be honest, Lars, I didn't see it as a loss. No, uh, that was me joking. I felt so honored. And I've never heard from other people around the world about a thing I've done or been as I've heard about the nomination. Mm. It really matters to people. It doesn't matter more to people that somebody wins. Yeah. You know, maybe the most thrilling thing, Lars, is that you and Thessaly have made this 10 podcast biography and also study of me that I'm thrilled to have out there. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking how often in my life people have asked me, well, what's it like to grow up with Patch Adams as your dad? And now I can just be like, well, how much time you got? There's a whole podcast. I'm very grateful that we did this, of course, to like spend this much time with you virtually in the pandemic. And it's been a treat. I mean, here are people being honored in the highest way a peace activist can be honored by being nominated for this prize. It's very interesting. I don't think winning it matters. I think the nomination is a giant acknowledgement. I'll be honest with you, I can't imagine being nominated feels less thrilling than winning. The only part of the winning that would be useful for me are the financial gains from it because I'm trying to build a hospital and I'm the worst fundraiser in American history. I don't think you're the worst. Oh, hospital should be fun. Hospital should be nice. Hospital should be fun and nice. Giving the award to two journalists. Who have both been arrested. Who've both been arrested by their state. They're trying to tip their hat to something that is very important and relevant in the time of like everything being quote unquote fake news and... I don't feel slighted at all. Oh, well, we already knew this. As soon as I heard that you got nominated, like I already knew you weren't going to win. And that's okay. Like I knew it wasn't about you winning. (laughs) And you taught me that if you have more fun on the losing team than the winning team, the winning team's not going to feel very great about winning. And the losing team, we're going to be having a great time because we don't care about winning. (laughs) I I mean, it's so much not me to go, well, shit, I didn't win the Nobel Prize. What I won was recognition on the highest scale that the world has to offer for the work I've done. That's really huge. And it it does, you know, it's funny if it's huge and then somebody else wins, are you going to throw away the huge or just keep the huge and, and be grateful? So many troubles in the world today. I don't know what to say. Oh, uh, what can you do? I just want to feel good and you need a happy, funny, thoughtful mind. Keep me loving and cooperative, creative all the time. Oh, and I'll be feeling fine. The nomination is what is important. That you've lived the, a life of a peace worker and you set your mind to it since you were, were a late teenager. And that's impressive. You're relentless joyful optimism and desire to be a radical human every day of your life is yeah it's incredible and i see how much of that has 
influenced how I exist today. Seeing the responses you got in every space we entered growing up because of your dress differently than everyone else and seeing the confusion and the like whisperings but then also the people who engaged with you and like played with you it led me to see you know and then I studied anthropology so I now identify as a clown anthropologist and so like everything is a social experiment and that part of that is how we dress I grew up getting so used to the eyes always being on us in whatever space we entered so I became okay with that attention and then I also saw beyond just the attention that it elicited play and interaction with people that wouldn't have happened otherwise had I not been dressed that way oh blue hair everywhere blue hair everywhere all people they stop and say blue hair everywhere people with their mouths agape will ask me if the curtains match the drapes all oh, blue hair everywhere Yeah, and I think like you are very worthy of the nomination. I I never thought otherwise. After the nomination, I felt they made a good choice. It's also like people behind closed doors making a choice. And I was just talking to a new friend today about your workshop. What's your love strategy? You are the instrument. Hence the title. What is your love strategy? Can you think of anything in your life more important than loving? Raise your hand. Okay, most people operate from a syntax of because. Because of my age, my race, my gender, my economic status, because of my disease. Because, 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 because. The syntax of the little formula I'm giving you is so that. I perform so that my intention is put forward. That I wake up, I'm clear about my intentions. And then I'm just choosing performances and seeing how they did and all through the day. And then I go to bed. It actually works. It requires focusing. Okay, instead of going, oh, poor me, I failed this or lost my car keys or whatever that is. You're going, I will be loving. I will love life, whatever intentions you choose. And then you do them because I will be loving. Getting me to like, think about strategies for loving at, at a young age and then practice them as a clown has shaped me more than I'll ever know. And then the the love you experience clowning with a stranger, yeah, love is in everything and everywhere. And I, I'm very grateful to have grown up hearing you say that friendship is your religion because that is definitely something I've adopted wholeheartedly. Friendship is my religion. Glory, hallelujah. So as Patch and Lars chatted, Patch's partner Susan, with purple hair and wearing overalls, puttered busily in the background. I'd been trying to nail her down for an interview for months, and finally got her to sit down and tell us about herself and life with Patch. The idea that Susan still loves me is a miracle. Agreed. Just kidding. You're lovable. No, I live here. This is where I um, have a school and a puppet theater. And I invited Patch to come live here. And a grand piano. And a grand piano. Because I figured 
he'd probably be pretty poor and have millions of friends, which he has. And so I was right. He's pretty poor. <laughs> I feel like I keep the house together and stuff and, and worry about car insurance. At the same time, I'm writing puppet shows for uh, climate change right now. And so I spend four or five hours working on that because of trying to help Patch get through his losing a leg and all the various things that happened. That was like around eight or nine months of my life. And I had to drop out of a bunch of activities that I was doing just because I couldn't Patch needed someone to be there, be here. And now I'm trying to jump back onto them. And it's a wonderful feeling of being able to work for three or four hours because I know he's really safe. This prosthesis thing is fantastic. <laughs> okay, so you see, I managed to uh, make you forget the question you asked. <laughs> so my name is Susan Rose Cecile Parenti. My whole, both sides of my family are from Italy. When I was 21, I went to Italy thinking I was escaping the U.S. and Vietnam, and I bumped into a level of blatant sexism in Italy, which assured me that I'm American. I'm American. I'm an intellectual. I say that intentionally because I think intellectuals are people that solve problems with thinking and feeling and caring. So I am proud to stand with intellectuals. <laughs> I have a doctorate in music composition, which I'm proud of. It is the solutions. It's a too bad that they're in music because we could sure use them in society and politics. The solutions that composers have come up with, enabling people to sit for an hour listening to a symphony is magical. Lately, in the last, say, four or five years of my life, I found myself impatient with music because I don't think it knows how to participate in shaping the politics we need right now. And I've got to face that because I have a commission to write an opera. But I just notice I'm not confident that music has the capacity. So I've done a lot of writing theater and things like that. And then maybe the last, see, I'm not talking about you. It's not, it, <laughs> can you say something about the, five, the four or five plays? Oh, I've more than four or five, okay. But I mean the ones that we are rehearsing. Oh, How much okay. Fun with that. Yeah, okay. So I'm writing puppet scripts on climate change and got Patch involved and my friend Marina. So for the last week, every day we're practicing. We're going to go to the farmer's market and play these in the farmer's market. And being from the world of experimental composition, I think you two will understand quite well what I'm talking. I've discovered that if you make things logical, it's boring. So I have to compose an intentional illogic, kind of like what you're doing with these podcasts. <laughs> seize the moment, give a kind of straight upside down answer. And that's what these podcasts, and not podcasts, that's what these puppet shows are like. <laughs> and then when we talk about tree, we go, I'm a tree, I'm, a, I'm anthropomorphizing. Oh, look at me. <laughs> Bunch of human Muppets. Yes, yes. Did I do the right thing? You're doing great. Yes, you're doing great. <laughs> okay. I think both of you are intellectuals, so to me it uh, makes sense that you identify as such. It explains a lot of the depth of your and Patch's connection and love for each other is the your, your vast intellectual minds. <laughs> well, that's really sweet. But yes, I mean, when I decided to make a commitment to Patch, it was to his project and him. And I've made the joke, it's not so jokey, that when I first heard his project way back in 1988, I fell in love with that project. It's a brilliant design because it doesn't just say free, because we have Shriners and things like that. We have free hospitals, but it changes the paradigm. It means 
if people don't have to pay, then they need to be connected and feel needed by this project and need it. What Patch is trading is this capitalist emptiness. And even when you get free healthcare, that doesn't do it yet. What happens is, is that people feel like they belong to Gesundheit. And I'm sure that's what you guys are all finding. The people generally associated with Gesundheit and these things have a network of belongingness. And that is so crucial. And the, the whole idea of time, which is what the hospital project talks about, that there'd be three, four hour interviews. It's incredibly smart. And when people say, you know, oh, we're building a free clinic, they should say we're building a clinic that will give you time. His project is full of really thought through things. And on those days when I think he's an idiot, I remind myself that he's made this fantastic project. And there must be, but I, yeah, I, I love his project, our project. I mean, I've stuck my head in there a bunch of times trying to have conferences and teach teach the project, whatever that means, so that people don't feel they're following in Patch's way. And I recognize the merit for the zany humor. It's so crucial. Um, I was just reading a quote that maybe humor is our way to reconnect with humanity. You have no hope in hell if you think seriousness and doom and gloom is going to get you through. Uh... And I've gotten to know Lars through his stages of being like a tall noodle when he was six. <laughs> and hang around with his dad and yeah. not see him so interestingly self-evolving it's just really fantastic i have really uh, fond memories of the first time i saw you play the piano my jaw just dropped and my mind was blown patches puppy dog love for you uh, <laughs> it's so it's, <laughs> it's so cute it's like every time he talks about you. It's like he just met you, the love of his life, yesterday. It's like, <laughs> But he's really smart because he nope. makes the connection between us. Mm -hmm. He is flirting and being romantic. Mm -hmm. That's a really smart thing for a person to do. How did you guys meet? We met at, well, a cybernetics conference in 1986. It was called Creative Cybernetics, Our Utopian's Most Audacious Construction. And we heard about this guy in West Virginia, Patch Adams, that's trying to build this really crazy, very smart hospital. And he's also recites poetry and doesn't only talk about medicine. And so we invited him and he came. But I remember going down at night to, so this was a primarily complex systems conference, but at night we had plays and experimental music because we were like, we're gonna do this. We don't care what the scientists think about experimental music. And there was this tall person reciting the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And I thought, this is a doctor? You mean he's not a one-channel moron like all the doctors? He was real, he was, and he could answer questions and say them back, could talk about other subjects besides fucking medicine. I mean, that same way I learned in music, you know, musicians only, you know, oh, music, music, and everything else is like, huh, Afghanistan, what, where is it? So I've been so disappointed very often with things that start with M, medicine and music. But Patch was really all over the place. And then we became friends. And my partner, Herbert, had really severe emphysema. The 26 years I was with him, he had emphysema. And Patch, would he gave us this great idea. He said, why don't you guys go to Palm Springs? It's dry. And we did. And we had three years of going there over Christmas because what Patch proposed was great. It was He had really common sense solutions to things where I just didn't know how to solve things. And he was always understanding why, though Herbert's family wanted Herbert to go in a nursing home, I wanted to be with Herbert and said, I'd go in the nursing home too. If you put him there, I'll be there too. 
because I liked preferred to be with Herbert with his severe illness almost than with any other person in the world. So, and he understood that. So when I talked about care, he didn't go, oh, Susan, you're giving up your life for a man. What are you doing? And I told him, I'm caring. And he cares for me. And it, it made an indelible impression of care, what care can be. And Patch has language for it. He doesn't make you feel like you wasted your life because you took care of somebody. And I think we've got to learn that there's going to be a lot of care asked for from us, much more than we ever thought in order to get through life as a human being. I need a happy, funny, thoughtful mind Keep me loving, cooperative, creative all the time Then you know I'll be feeling fine So I've known Lars since he was a kid at Hippie Circus Theater Camp. And when we dived into this project together, we both had no idea the scope of the project, what would unfold, and how we were going to get from point A to Z. After months of interviewing Patch, Lars and I finally got a chance to talk about his own experience. And just to give you a visual, Lars is an outspoken, classically trained clown weirdo, vintage thrift picker, reseller, fabulously tattooed peace worker. How is making a podcast about your Nobel Peace Prize nomination dad going? It's been very enlightening. Thankfully, you are a good wrangler of clowns because I couldn't be doing this without you. What was it like to grow up with Patch Adams as your dad? When I used to get asked this question, I would often respond like, well, it was normal. For me, it was my daily experience. So I think as I got older, I started to really realize how unique my childhood experience was. I can see how being raised by a clown that told me everything is possible, always encouraged me to misbehave, lived very radically and bright and engaged and interacted with everyone everywhere. My whole life, Patch was dressed in his typical Patch attire. He is a beacon presenting as a freak that is outside of the status quo. As a kid, that was oftentimes embarrassing. I can remember being generally embarrassed by all the attention he garnered wherever we went. And I can also remember being generally embarrassed by a lot of the stuff he would loudly say so everybody around could hear him saying it. But like at the Taco Bell drive-thru, when they would ask if you want anything else with your order, he would say, a new president? Can you get the Nazis out of the White House? Or when we're going through customs, he would say the same thing. Are the Nazis still in the White House? If there was a moment for him to rise to the occasion, he would often do that. We're out at the mall and he decides to go all the way inside of his pants and start making weird noise because he wears the low crotch pants that he can enter in and it's just his long legs coming out of the pants. I don't know if I've told this story yet. When I was 17, he brought me to go see the show Puppetry of the Penis. It's a fringe show where these two guys do a whole comedy show with using their penis as a puppet. And so it's the audience participation moment of the show where they're asked, they show everybody how to make a hamburger with a dick. And then they ask if anybody in the audience wants to come make a hamburger with them on stage. And so Patch is hitting me on the shoulder. Come on, son. 
let's go do father son ham dick hamburgers and i just look at him like he's out of his mind like there's no way i was still like much shyer and awkward and the last thing i wanted to do is make a dick hamburger with my dad on stage that would have been mega ooper super duper embarrassing if he still went up even if i didn't because sure enough after the show patch buys all the memorabilia and is waiting in line to have them autograph it and somebody comes up to him and is like oh are you patch adams and he's like yes and she's like ah i was your son lars's kindergarten teacher and i was just like hi thank goodness we didn't go to father son dick hamburgers in front of my kindergarten teacher you could say i might take you and you'd be so astute i am cute when i'm in my monkey suit this goes along with that story. This is when I was younger. I must have been like 11. And we were out at Gesundheit, the land. And these sideshow weirdos came to town. And one of their classic bits was shooting bottle rockets out of their butt cheeks. So they would go up on stage and clinch a bottle rocket between their butt cheeks, light it, and it would shoot off. And so we watch a couple of them. And of course, they're like asking Patch to come up and do one. And Patch is like, come on, son, let's go do father-son butt bottle rockets. I was like, you're out of your mind. There's no way. Now I definitely would. But then... And he goes up and proceeds to put a bottle butt rocket between his butt cheeks and light it off. And But then a couple other people went up there, and I guess the guy didn't put it in the right angle and clinched too hard, and it turned back around and went straight for his balls, which was the best affirmation. To be like, glad I didn't do that. <laughs> there were times where... Maybe I felt like we didn't need to be calling a lot of attention to ourselves and Patch just can't help himself to the point where I'm like, do you have a filter? Like, really? He had to just go to the farts and the boogers. All right, here we go. But it's just so quintessentially him. Sometimes he's got a one track mind when it comes to clowning and that is something i would like to like say is that the guy with the fish is he he's very sensitive and doesn't always resort to being gross and is often very gentle and kind and takes up a lot less space than patch normally does and is very observant it is like he becomes a different person it's absolutely a character it's in patch's body but it behaves the guy with the fish behaves nothing like patch and then there's the times that patch is just clowning around but he's not the guy with the fish and that might be more fart centered um or song singing triple threat cheek spreader booger billy bob teeth i will say like in my adult life patch has like plenty of my friends the story of the like first time they met patch he ended up breaking out the triple threat and getting my friends to like suck on his fake booger okay i don't know what the triple threat is the triple threat is when he puts this like long dangly fake booger in his nostril that's silicone 
and then he puts Billy Bob teeth in, which are like the fake teeth that are missing or look weird, funky. And then the dentist teeth spreader. He just always has that on him. He has that in his pocket since he discovered the three of them together, I would say at least the past 10 to 15 years. He always has the triple threat in his pocket of his pants and is ready to do it at any moment. And I'm sure he's done it plenty of times in the grocery store, of course, at the airport, any moment that whether they want it or not. Paint us the picture of your childhood for all our listeners who never went to a hippie commune. When I was a kid, the first six years of my life, I lived in a communal house. There was three families in that living in that house. My dad's mother there and artists regularly coming in. I wasn't born at the height of the hippie commune. I was born in a communal house in Arlington, Virginia, in suburbia. There was a constant flow of people in the house and gatherings when all the hippies would get together. There's video of my birth and there's 30 or 40 people around supporting my mom. I think from that moment on, it really instilled the it takes a village mentality. And I was not only being raised by my parents, I was being supported and raised by an entire community. And through that, I learned at a young age that my it didn't matter what age people were, I could be best friends with anybody. Did you have hippie food? My brother always complained that I got food that he could have never gotten as a kid. Complained so, about the same with my brother. He also, the younger child's parents got tired of like saying no, right? Yeah, Zag wasn't allowed to have sugar and like for years on the hippie commune. And so he had, there's a notorious story where he finally discovers the jar of sugar at the hippie commune and he just sits on the kitchen counter fistfulling the sugar jar as you would do if you keep sugar from a child. Um, yeah, I was pretty shocked when I heard you and Patch went to Taco Bell. I mean, <gasps> hippie children didn't go to Taco Bell. <laughs> I know, that's part of the paradox of like being a hippie child growing up in suburbia because like my parents weren't, I was a picky eater as a kid. So if I was going to be thrilled about eating something, they were just like, all right, Lars is going to eat. So let's <laughs> come to what we know he'll eat. You mentioned that you lived in suburbia. What were your neighbors like? <laughs> and what did they think of you guys? One of the neighbors was like a FBI agent, an undercover FBI agent, but they got along really well with my parents. Wait, how did you find out he was an undercover FBI agent? Well, maybe they weren't undercover. undercover. I, I, they were an FBI agent of sort. I think it came out. I think of like Arlington, Virginia as pretty conservative. Yes, it's very heteronormative. It's very straight. It's yeah. very, what do you do versus what are you passionate about? As far as I know, I was the only spawn of hippies in my graduating class in high school. Tell me what it was like to be the sole hippie kid at school. It was like leading a double life. When I was with my counterculture community. It was a much different experience than when I was with my public school education community. I learned how to be a chameleon at a really young age. 
I was able to make friends with people in a lot of different groups. It took me going to California to Camp Winter Rainbow for the first time when I was eight years old, where I met Rainbow Valentine and I was exposed to an entire community of West Coast counterculture children and adults. My mind was blown. That's how I knew that I was really in a absolutely different environment growing up than where I wanted to be. It wasn't the best place to raise a creative weirdo. I, I think I suppressed a lot of that. I didn't do theater as a kid, even though my mom really tried to encourage me to. When I was 17 years old is when I dyed my hair orange for the first time. I was starting to explore being more publicly expressive and feeling my more natural self as I stopped trying to fake it till I make it in Arlington, Virginia. I'm just curious, growing up with such an over-the-top, creative, extrovert weirdo for a father, did that cause you to pull back a bit as a, a young person? Absolutely. Growing up in the shadow of Patch in my adolescence, in fifth and sixth grade is around when the movie was coming out. You know, I'm coming into puberty. I'm super awkward, trying to find my own. And I think I didn't overthink a lot of like, oh, it's difficult being in the shadow of Patch because I was also so present to just have fun and available to have fun and be along for the adventure. As I got a little older, it started to wear on me. I would say in my early 20s, so many of the spaces I entered, people didn't know me, but they knew I was Patch Adams' kid. And they would announce to all these other strangers that I don't know, they're like, oh, hey, that's Patch Adams' kid. And I think it didn't bother me as much as it, when I was younger, but as I got older, it began to bother me. I wanted to be the one who could share that with people when I chose to share that with people. There was quite a bit of years where I really resisted telling people and I would see how long I could go without telling people so that they had formed their own opinion of me as a person before hearing that and then being asking all the questions that come with when I tell somebody I'm Patch Adams' kid. You see me on the town I'm turning the frowns upside down, upside down when I'm in my monkey suit. Being a producer of this podcast, I, you know, I've had a lot of revelations about you and your dad, and you're essentially stepping into his shoes and continuing his work, but in your own generational way. You're a reflect, a modern reflection of Patch. It's really interesting. I, I mean, there's no denying it. I, of course, having a handlebar mustache now and blue hair, in addition to dressing as colorfully as I do and as colorfully as he does. You don't just look like your dad, but you're right. doing piecework. You're right. putting extreme creativity into the world. You walk into these dire places and bring joy and relief from suffering. Yeah, I'm very grateful that I had such an absurd example in my life in Patch that showed me that there's infinite other ways to express and play, engage with this world. One of the qualities I love most about my dad is his playful, cheerful spirit that he shares with anyone who's willing to share in it with him. And I really realized that his intention and how he dressed on a daily basis is so much more than just dressing like a clown because it allowed people to feel 
curious or it allowed people to engage with him or it brought the freaks to you him immediately. As soon as I started to put more intention to how I dressed, I realized strangers were engaging with me in a more playful, interesting way. And by being a beacon of all that I presently am, I received so much love. I can't deny the magic that it wields. It took me a while to really feel like my own person and to really feel like I'm Lars. Yes, I'm the son of Patch Adams, but I'm also the son of Linda Edquist my mom and I'm a mama's boy and my dad was off spreading his gospel around the world. My mom was home raising my mischievous ass and disciplining me because Patch couldn't discipline me to save his life. Did he ever discipline you? I have vague recollection of a times he tried. when the teachers would call home because I was misbehaving in the classroom, being disruptive, Patch would answer. He would start asking for details about how I was misbehaving and if it was funny or if I was being a good clown or, oh, he's gonna be a good clown one day. All my teachers had to like, just pass on my mom's number to each other. Growing up in the Bay Area with counterculture people, I didn't realize that it was a revolutionary act to dress creatively and to be a totally creative person because I was surrounded by a community of extreme creatives. Listening to you and Patch speak and Patch, you know, Patch's philosophy, it really drives it home that this is, it is a revolutionary act to be an extreme creative and to dress like an extreme creative and put that into the world every single day. And to dress as a clown, bright colors, playful, it is just a pure expression of love. Yeah, you know, I majored in anthropology and sociology. And so I think about how our society since childhood has not fostered the arts in us because our society doesn't nurture creativity or value it, telling your non-counterculture family that you're gonna be a artist for the rest of your life and then the looks that you get from them afterwards. And that's part of why I feel so determined to continue to not only dress this way myself, but I'm also a vintage and clothing treasure hunter. And I want everybody I know and am connected to, to be empowered in clothes that they feel their happiest, best self in. It doesn't need to be the same aesthetics that I dress in, but I believe so much in the power of how we dress and our our society doesn't want us to be expressive. Patch is an extreme peace worker. He's also an extreme clown. Is there anything he is half-ass about? Growing up, Patch was known for sleeping about four hours a day. He was motivated by the work and by the drive to that he just couldn't stop. Whether it was writing letters, making phone calls, traveling, giving lectures, workshops, it was nonstop. And it is nonstop. Is anybody there? Does anybody care? Back to Patch and Lars in our final wrap-up interview. You're such a dork. Oh my gosh. 
And I'm a dork every day, if that helps. In my youth, it was struggle, oftentimes, not having you as a dad, but having people identify me as Patch Adams' kid, and they wouldn't even know my name. And I know that's not, that's not you, that's not what you wanted, but that's just celebrity culture in this world. And so it took me, you know, time to really know that I am clearly very much my own person. I'm Lars Adams. I have always said that uh, Patch is my biggest fan. And that's true. I am a huge fan, okay? And I want you to hear that. We haven't had a lot of these conversations on some of the subjects, so it's the first time I've heard you speak on some subjects. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna, again, I think you know I wouldn't bullshit. I, I think you understand me. I'm gonna tell you another thing in seeing you right in this minute, that it's been a snuggle you've done with your dad. We always, I always liked snuggling you. Uh, as a kid, I, I was always in Patch's lap, like curled up in a ball. And yeah, this is definitely uh, uh, another type of snuggling. And I'm inspired to keep doing more radical peace work. It's made me wonder if Piet in South Africa gives me the donation he's been promising me for seven years. I'll get a case of champagne. Yes, the big donation's coming. I know it's coming. Here comes a big donation, and it's going to make well, the best day of our lives even better. We can laugh about Piet. There's never any discouragement whatsoever. You talking about the big donation that's potentially coming around the window is like forever one of my memories of you like it's I just hear this bird in my head like I'm about to talk to Patch okay we've talked about how life has been and then it's the end of the conversation all right son the big donation is coming and get ready to pop the champagne bottles your relentless optimism it's great I'm glad you never give up <laughs> I love that we've never folded 51st year well just allow it to keep evolving and yeah. The Best Day of My Life, Patch Adams' Journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination is produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Lars and Patch Adams, Rainbow Valentine, and Thessaly Lerner. Written and edited by Thessaly Lerner. Mixed, scored, and mastered by Ryan Reeves. Narrated by Rainbow Valentine. All the delightful tunes heard throughout the series are by Noodle McDoodle, who created songs on the fly specifically for this podcast. Music donated by Hope for a Golden Summer, Noodle McDoodle, the ukulele, and Greg Moore. We are so grateful to all the people who devoted their talent, time, and energy for free at some point throughout the production process. Thanks to Derek Busby, Stuart Hooper, Luke McLaughlin, Alan Price, Will Collins, Gabby Lala, Jason Holtschneider, Christian and Peter at Pantheon Podcasts, and everyone previously mentioned in the credits for this episode. I can't stress enough that we made this series for free because we believe in sharing stories that spread hope, peace, and love. If you enjoyed this series, please share it. You can find us on Instagram at Rainbow Valentine Lemur, like the animal, and Ding Dong Derp, plus RainbowValentine.com and PatchAdams.org. Thanks so much for listening.
I really appreciate you guys inviting me into your intimate circle and uh, trusting me to share your story. Thank you, Presley. I mean, and thank Camp Winter Rainbow for bringing us all together. Thank you. So how do I log out? Um, We'll do it. Ta-ta. Love you, oh, Lars, so much. Love you, Pat. I love you, derp, derp. Derp, derp.